Hi, my name's Claire. Oh, thanks, Deirdre. My name's Claire. I'm a missionary and I work with Youth with a Mission or Ungdomiopdrag in the north of Norway. Uh, I'm based near Tromsø, is the nearest city to us, just by the Finnish border. Uh, I get the joy of traveling around Europe, teaching on Bible schools and doing all kinds of missionary stuff with the northern peoples. So from Greenland and Iceland, the Faroe Islands, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and into Russia, and occasionally down into Germany as well. So I spend my life living out of a suitcase. But this is my home church. This is my family. You're my family. And it's wonderful to be home. I get to come home about once a year for a holiday. Uh, last week, our, our friend John Greenshields was teaching about forgiveness and utilizing Jesus' parable about the man who owned 30,000 denarii and was forgiven by the king, yet he held a small debt over, over the poor man. Because we're doing this series on the Lord's Prayer. Now, I must admit, when my pastor, Dave, gave me, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I thought, oh, here we go. <sighs> Oscar Wilde said, the only thing I can't resist is temptation. <sighs> Isn't that the same for the, most of us all of the time? Temptation's not just chocolate and haggis suppers when they come home. Uh, but I love it when I get a chance to teach on something a wee bit meaty, something that's got a bit of, a bit of oomph to it. But what I've noticed with God is he presses all your buttons on what you're going to teach on just to make sure you can actually stand in front of people and tell the truth. Because we want to hide a little bit. We want to pretend that we're all okay and we come to church on a Sunday, put on our plastic smile, I'm fine, when we know at times we're really not. We're human and we're weak. But as Dave's doing this to me, I'm getting do not covet thy neighbor or your neighbor's stuff. Because I've had one of those years where things haven't gone entirely well. About four weeks ago, I'd driven to the south of Finland, just over a thousand kilometers. And as I was driving into the missions base, my car started to throw diesel onto the, onto the exhaust manifold. And I very, very nearly set my car on fire. And my car died. And I couldn't fix it. No one could fix it. So I was, I've been battling with that temptation of, oh, poor me. I hope we're going to get a car. And then seeing other people's cars and going, that would be nice. I, I, I could do with that nice Audi. I, I would really like that, God. And then trying to do everything I can to fix it. Doing everything I can in my power to make it happen. And not trusting God. And not giving God the space to help me. Have you ever heard people say that apocryphal thing? God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. It's not true. If you, if you use that most reliable of sources, Wikipedia, it takes it back to a guy in 1736, Algernon Sidney, and was apparently then quoted by Benjamin Franklin. Wonderful guy, but this isn't a biblical principle. And don't, don't use it as a stick to beat yourself. Oh, I should be doing more and walking about. Oh, oh, I'm just a terrible person. I've not got everything fixed in my life. And don't use it as a stick to beat someone else either. I've heard that used a lot. But let's go back, back to the Lord's Prayer. And please note, as I talk about this, it may seem as though I'm going a little bit sideways. Can I have the first slide? But I think you'll grasp, it, grasp what I'm talking about if you stay with me to the end. How often do we pray the Lord's Prayer and then, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? But how often do you actually think about it? 
I've been in churches around the world now over, over many times, and it doesn't matter where you are, which country is done in the same rhyme and meter. We all say it as almost like a little chant, and it's the same thing. We don't often think it through. I certainly haven't always thought it through. I've taught on it before, but I've not thought it through. Can I have the second slide, please? So I want to ask you a couple of questions. What were the two trees in the Garden of Eden? Tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what was the other one that's really mentioned? Yes, exactly. In this world, we know lots of things that are true. Things that are true for a moment. And then things move on. But we're talking with God. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So often in our lives, there's not much that's submitted to him. We get busy. We get doing things in our lives. We look after the kids. We're cooking the dinner. We're going to work. We're coming to church. It's not all submitted to God. But Jesus was submitted to the Father. And because of that strong link with him, when Jesus was, Jesus was at his weakest, after 40 days in the desert, fasting, that's when the devil kicked him. The devil didn't kick him when he was really strong. And together he kicked him when he was weak. But because of that strong relationship with the Father, because he was living in truth, he was living with God in every day of his life when he was on earth, in the way he lived his life, that allowed him to resist the devil when the devil came to tempt him. He stood firm on God's word. And he said, no, 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 it is written. That was how Jesus defended himself. He said, no, no, it's written in the word of God. But the devil shows up and he kicks you when you're down and he drips these honey poisons into our hearts and to corrupt us because he's a monster. He's a liar, a thief and a murderer. And when he does this, we can start to live in knowledge of good and evil, but not be submitted to the tree of life. So we start knowing and understanding what's right and wrong. And then these honey potions that he whispers into us, you can just do that, you can just try that, go on, it'll be okay, it'll be fine. And they distract us. And suddenly we're doing things that we didn't really intend to do. Our morality slides and that leaves us in temptation's path. Temptation in itself is not a bad thing because it shows up the weakness in our lives. It's kind of warning lights, go on, warning, warning, you're in trouble now. You need to deal with this problem. It's when it goes into temptation, when we take that extra step into trouble, that's when it becomes a problem. But let's unpack this delivery from evil. And yeah, let's go back to the Garden of Eden again. Can I have slide three? Uh, do you know what the great lie was that the, servant, the serpent spoke to Eve? You will not surely die, the serpent told, told her. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see the subtlety of what the devil did there, what the evil one did? He made Eve believe she was something lesser. She was made in the image of God. Adam and Eve already knew this. They'd been told this. They were made in his likeness. But when the devil put that little sting in there, that hurt her. That made her feel she had to perform. And I'm promising you, you don't have to perform for God. Be real, because he knows who you are. But Eve in that moment started a bad thought process. She started to think, God's holding me back. God doesn't want me to be like him. 
I've got to, I've got to be the good girl. I've got to perform. I've got to be, I've, I, I want to be like God. It's a subtle lie that gets into us, that rejection. You and I, as I say, were made in his image. But Adam also fell for it. Adam wasn't the only one who fell for that lie of not being good enough. He, he stayed silent Well, Eve took the fruit and then shared it with him. And evil rose up and destroyed their innocence and creation fell. And that terrible thing is still happening today. We get stuck in our rejections and we seek to comfort ourselves from those rejections and pains because rejection is something no one can live with easily. We can't stand it. It hurts too much. We're designed for relationship. We're designed to relate to each other and live together. But rejection hurts. You see it in little kids when they get bullied. Their heads go down and they sit in the corner and they're silent. But it happens with adults too in the workplace. It happens in the home. You don't feel good enough. It happens in churches because you're not in the coolest crowd in church sometimes. And I've seen it in the very big churches where you have little cliques all over the place. But we need to stand on the truth of God which is 1 John 3, 1, how great the love that is lavished upon us that we might be called children of God, and that we are. Wow, who's rejected in that statement? Not me. <laughs> His love is lavished on me. And it's a singular truth. It's a beautiful thing. What Deirdre was talking about, having your table, your banqueting table put before you, even in the midst of your enemies, it's an incredibly powerful thing to do that. It's not easy. Because we live in this world of temptation. Up in Norway, I don't actually have a TV, so I've been staying with my mom, and she's got Sky TV. Almost every 14 and a half minutes, there's advertisements. Each one of those adverts is tempting us, all telling us that our lives aren't good enough, that we'll be complete when we buy their product, when we upgrade from our Ford Fiesta to a Volvo, and from our Volvo to an Audi, that we'll, be, we'll have an amazing life. Or if we go and get that plastic surgery and we'll be, we'll be pretty and slim and we'll just be wonderful. Absolute nonsense. You are loved and you are amazing as you are. Those things are just tools. Don't let them rule your life. But, I mean, even the guys get that now as well with all the masculinity things. I've seen, I met a guy the other day. He had pec, pec implants put into his chest to make him look a bit bigger. It worked for him for about three months and then he still felt crap. He still felt down. It's sad. Or you can have instant cash and only a thousand percent interest. <laughs> but oh, I need that new fridge freezer. You know, they, they have some juxtaposition where they're, where they're struggling for that moment. We get tempted in our weakness points. But it's also in our personality and our faith. We get tempted in different ways. Next slide four. Uh, it's crucial that we don't, you know, that we recognize this temptation coming and what's going on in us so we can overcome it. So you don't wallow about in it like I was doing the other day about the car. And I, for me, how am I going to buy a car from Scotland and Norway and how am I going to check it out and all of these panicky things instead of, that's okay, God's got this. He'll, he'll make it happen. But it's such an important thing. Even Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians. I'm afraid, however, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds will be led astray from your simple and pure devotion to Christ. 
He is so subtle in how he does it. People imagine he's the guy with the, the red pitchfork and the big tail and horns. He's much more subtle than that, but he absolutely is a monster. He comes with the smiling face and the encouragement, I can fix you, you'll be fine. The message under there is, there's something wrong with you. You're so broken, I can fix you with this thing. I can fix you with the new MacBook Pro. I can fix you with the new iPhone XS or XS Max or whatever. And we get caught up in having these new things all the time. The love of money is the root of all evil. And it takes a heartbeat to go from your eye to the ideation that we need to have someone else to make us feel better. Let me demonstrate a wee principle that, that I've taught in prisons in New Zealand, I've taught in the Pacific Islands, and I've taught in the north of Norway. Uh, and it's, it shows what's going on when we fall into these temptations. Can I have slide five? Because there's God's way. The plumb line is the word of God. It tells us how to be and how to live and what our identity is. You're the, child, you're the children of God. You are beloved by the Lord. He, he, he went to that for you. He went through hell for you and rose again for you personally. Not for the other 7.2 billion people on the planet, but you, because you're a special kind of bad person that he doesn't care about. He went through it all. But in that heartbeat, we swing to rejection. That first swing of rejection can be all kinds of things, but we try and comfort ourselves, often with food, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever your, whatever your poison is. And it works. It works for a while. Shopping, chocolate, shoes, that's just me. And even as a friend of mine, overdone exercise. She goes and runs marathons. She doesn't need to, but she does, because it impacts her. And she feels good with that adrenaline rush at the end, all those endorphins bouncing around her body. And it works until the next day. It works until the next week. And then what do you do? Because you're a little bit of rebellion that's kind of coped with the pain. Instead of running to God and going, God, I'm struggling here. I need your help. You've given something else power in your life and authority in your life. And it doesn't work. So you're back in rebellion. And then the rebellion doesn't work, so you swing back to rejection. I don't know if you've known anyone who's addicted to alcohol or drugs or anything like that. They're going through this day by day, hour by hour. And it's a horrible place to be in. It's a really difficult cycle for them to break. But when you, when you recognize it, when you see what's going on in your life, this rejection, rebellion thing, you can come back to God's way where he tells you, you are enough. I love you just as you are. My work on the cross was enough. I have hope for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. And if you seek me with all your heart, you shall find me. And when you find me, you shall pray to me. And when you pray to me, you shall be heard. Oh my gosh, what a statement that is. That's a life changer. That's a game changer. And you can tie that in with that 1 John 3, 1, how great the love that is lavished upon us that we might be called children of God, and that we are. How dare you feel rejected? How can you feel rejected when you hear that truth from the Lord? It's stunning. But we have so much in our world 
in the West. We have so many toys to play with, so many things in our lives that fill our lives up to bursting and we don't create room for God. I was speaking with a friend of mine who works with Open Doors, which is a missionary organization that works in some of the most persecuted places in the world. And she was saying, do you know, the people in the persecuted church pray for us in the West because we've got so much. It seems like we don't need God because we've got everything comfortable. That's quite a thought, isn't it? People in China who are having their churches burned down pray for us because they feel sorry for us because we've got so much. But please in this note that I'm not advocating ascetism, that thing where you dress in sackcloth and ashes and go into the desert because you'll be more holy then. But it's not allowing these things to become idols in our life. Because these things will never, ever complete you. They might be fun for a while. They might be a useful tool. Nothing wrong with that. And I'm not saying getting a new pair of shoes is sinful. Believe me, it's not. It's the attitude behind it. If you're using that to make yourself feel better, or are you having a whiskey at the end of the night? Because it's been a rough week, so I'm going to drink whiskey to feel better. You're doing it in the wrong way. So we do this rejection, rebellion swing backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. I find myself doing this from time to time. Thankfully, God kind of raises something up in my heart. and go, oh yeah, remember what you were teaching about last week, Claire? Well, wake up, girly, it's today. But we turn from God so often instead of towards him. And we fall into temptation. And it's crucial to, to see these things going on. When I was teaching this in the prisons, you've got a lot of guys in prison who are quite angry. I don't know about you, but I get angry occasionally. Well, at least 10 times a day over something. And I get annoyed with people. So I, one of my rebellion swings is superiority. Who do they think they are? Who are they to tell me? Have you seen people do that one? Watch a politics show. You see that all the time. Who do they? And they go with their narrative. And they're the only one who could possibly be right. Superiority. Imagining that you can't be wrong is a rebellion swing. Even as, as a teacher of, of the word, I sometimes think, oh yeah, I understand God. If you've understood all of God, it's not God because you've got him in a nice little box and he's bigger than that. How can our wee minds cope with the majesty and the glory of God and all that he is? So that arrogance, that hubris can be part of it. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I decided I was going to go a day without sin. I was not going to go into temptation. So I'm laid in my bed thinking it's going to be a good day. It's going to be cool. And I got excited because I was going to do a day where I did nothing wrong. I'd already fallen into pride. Could you see that one? <laughs> but I couldn't at the time. So in my excitement, I jumped out of bed and I hit my head on the roof bar. You know, the, And I went, oh, I'd, I'd spoiled it in about two and a half seconds. The truth is, we need God. We absolutely need God day in, day out, year in, year out. He's our comforter. He's our strength. He's our hope. He's our life. He's our future. He's our present. He's our past. He's our healer. I can go on talking about the nature and character of God, which I do when I'm teaching on Bible schools. But we so easily dive into our misery. A lot of people, when, they start to, when they've had a lot of rejection in their lives, particularly as kids, 
they get into destructive relationships. They, you see them, you make those little vows, I'm never going to marry someone like my dad, or I'm never going to marry someone like my mom. Guess what? 70% of the time you've got someone who's got a lot of character of that person. But the problem isn't the character of that person, it's that you're looking to them to fix you. You're looking to them to heal your broken heart. And I suspect every person in here who's married will be going, doesn't work. They, they don't fix me. God fixes me. Marriage will bring out the very worst in you and the very best. It's a challenge to then allow God to be that third person in that relationship. But I, I work with teenagers a lot and I see so many young women. Oh, if only I had a husband, I'd be complete. No, stop it. If only, if only I had a godly wife, then it would be fine. If only I had not slept about here and slept about there, I would be fine. The lie in there is that you can't be healed. You can't be made new. You can't be restored by the Lord. It's absolutely a lie. There's a wonderful book called Isaiah. And one of my favorite things to talk from is Isaiah 61. And God promises beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. And it's magnificent. It's so powerful. That was what Peter spoke about on, as he, after they'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The oil of joy for mourning. Beauty for ashes. He regives purity. He restores us. Because the blood of, blood of Christ on the cross either worked or it didn't. It was either there for you and restored you or it didn't. Hang on that truth. He hung on it and he came off it. The, the cross is empty. The tomb is empty because that resurrection blood is in you. When you've been born again in the Lord, when you're walking with God, that resurrection is in you and you have hope against temptation. Folk throw themselves into careers and ignore those closest to them. And they imagine providing money and toys and a house makes up for absenteeism in love. It's tragic. We get, in this world today, we're so focused on money and having enough, and having the same as the guy next door or the woman next door. We lose on that identity in Christ that holds us in God's plumb line, that holds us in God's way, that helps us build our lives straight and true. In Amos 7.7, which is the first scripture up there, it's a plumb line that God is talking with Amos about. Plumb line is a weight on the end of a piece of string so builders can build walls straight and true. We need to do that in our lives, otherwise everything gets twisted and bent out of shape. But God is incredible. He restores your broken heart. Even what he was talking about in Amos 7-7 and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after it had been smashed. They'd been sold into slavery. Yet God was rebuilding the walls again with the same blocks of stone. It wasn't new blocks of stone, it was the same blocks of stone. And God will rebuild your lives straight and correct and in line with him if you let him and i want to encourage you to let him don't live in that agony of loneliness don't live just stuck in your phone as your only way of communicating with people because that doesn't work that for very long we need to see people we need to look people in the eye we actually need physical touch to thrive as human beings don't be afraid to step out take a risk Make friends with people. When you go out for coffee, turn your phone upside down so it doesn't ring. There's a pastor I, I know 
and he's got this group of pastors and they all pray together and they put their phones all on the table and the person whose phone rings first is the one who pays for dinner. <laughs> but they're right. They want to sit there and have, conversa- have God conversations. It's crucial to our lives to have these God conversations. But quite often unintentionally and occasionally very intentionally, we step into our weakest points and we give those temptations life. We, 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 we actually speak death into ourselves. And I want to submit to you the idea that every time we give in to temptation, we submit ourselves to evil. We're not being delivered from evil. We're submitting ourselves to evil. And as I say, evil's not stood there with a pitchfork and a big red tail and horns. It's much more subtle than that. But next time, next time you pray the Lord's Prayer, and we'll probably do it at the end here, I want you to ask yourself, who is on the throne of my life? Are you submitted to God as you say in the Lord's Prayer, our Father? Is he really your Father? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking to the Holy Spirit within you? So who's sitting on the throne of your life? Is it my new car? Can't be. Is it that whiskey at the end of night, at the end of the night, to make you feel better? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it the next relationship? Is it the next laptop? Is it if only I could sing like Deirdre, then I'd then I'd be okay. You are okay. You are amazing. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knitted you together in your mother's womb. He planned you. It's incredible. And Jesus' work on the cross and that resurrection can set us free. But it requires something that's not always the most comfortable thing to talk about. Repentance. Repentance isn't just going, sorry, and carrying on. It's deliberately turning from what you've done, what you've been doing and asking God for help. Because you can't overcome sin by yourself. We're just not strong enough. We're just weak human beings. But with God, then we can overcome. Then it changes when you let him in on it. Repentance is a heavy thing. When I've had to deal with stuff in my life, and I promise you I have not been the good girl all my life by any means, it's been painful. When I teach on Bible schools, I very often teach from the own exam- my own examples in my life where I've done things wrong and I've learned from it terrible relationships, a series of bad boyfriends because I was looking to them to fix me. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to go and apologize to somebody when you've done something wrong. The temptation is to pretend that you're okay. The temptation is not to confront these things. Very often in our culture, in Scotland, in Norway, in, in Poland, you don't really show yourself up to have done something stupid. You don't expose yourself. You don't embarrass yourself in public. You pretend that everything's okay. And then you just carry on as though it's, it's okay now, we've, we're fine. But it's important to feel the weight of that sin sometimes. It's important to go and apologize to somebody, to go and repent to them. So you don't walk into that temptation another step and another step and another step and you find yourself going deeper and deeper into stupid things and it's very, very hard to come back from those. My throat's just wobbling a little bit because I'm remembering some of the stuff I've done and how hard it was to come back. 
And I'm sure we've all got that in our lives. We've all done stuff. You just think, why did I do that? What was I thinking? What was going on? That was going on. Rejection and rebellion. And it takes that long to do it. It took Eve that long from when the devil made her feel terrible. It took Judas that long. It took Peter three crows of a, of a cockerel. I was going to say a chicken, but it wasn't. It was a cockerel. It's that quick. And suddenly we're lying. Suddenly we're doing things we shouldn't have. I worked in nursing for 20 odd years. People stole pens left, right and center. You could never find a pen because you just put it down on the desk, you turn around, someone's walked off with it. It's just a pen, but it was actually your pen. You paid money for it, that was yours. But people pick them up and go and they think it's okay. That sliding morality happens. Oh, it's just a pen, I need it to do work. We slide very, very quickly. And it's, you, you rarely just step off a cliff. It's a little slide, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And suddenly you find yourself 18 months down the line in a relationship with somebody you shouldn't be in a relationship with. Or doing things in your life you wish you weren't doing. Behaving in a way that's just not what you want. And you think, I should be better than this. I, why am I doing this stuff? Recognize this. When I was teaching, as I say, I've taught this in the prisons about rejection and rebellion. And it's such a simple, powerful concept that it really impacts people. I had one guy, and he was in the suicide unit of the prison because he was so broken about everything that happened in his life. And he had huge anger problems. You know, if his cup wasn't filled up quite right, it would be thrown across the room. That was a symptom of his pain. But I was sitting down with him, and I was showing him this kind of stuff so he could start to see where his mental processes were going. And I finished with him, and I was on my way back to my office in the prison when I got a little phone call, can you come back down? Alan's kicked off again. And so I walked the half a kilometer back to the prison unit, and it was really calm in the prison unit. And I was thinking, well, Alan's kicking off. Where is he? And he's sitting cross-legged in the padded room with a big grin on his face. What, what happened? He said, oh... The guy opposite me, he heard that you were talking to me about God, so he's banging on the window, screaming, Bible basher, you know, all of these kind of insults to him about being a Christian. And he said, and I lost it. So I started ripping up my bed and throwing things about. And then when the guards came in, they got me by, one by each arm and each leg, and someone's got my head. And then I thought, oh, rejection, rebellion, that's what's going on. And so they put him in the padded room while I tidied everything up, but he calmed right down because he started to understand his thinking process. Suddenly, it's not the authority of that man accusing him and giving him a hard time who's on the throne. He put God back on the throne with the crown. Alan wasn't on the throne. God was. And over a period of about two or three months, his anger problems reduced quite considerably. And as his anger problems came a bit more under control, his suicidal feelings came a bit more under control. Because he started to realize the root of it was rejection. The root of it was loss of relationship because he'd been chucked in prison because he'd done a really stupid thing. But because of this, and because I continued to talk with him, he actually wrote to the people that he'd stolen from and apologized and said, no, I'm, go I'm not going to take any time off prison. I'm not going to take early parole. I'm going to walk this out because I did wrong to you. And I'm so sorry I did wrong to you. 
I can give you all kinds of reasons why I did it, but please forgive me, I was an idiot. I did the wrong thing. He walked out of temptation. His temptation was to hide. His temptation was to be the big tough man in the prison because he was a huge Maori guy with facial tattoos and everything. But he walked out of that place. He walked through a little bit of embarrassment and humiliation. And just before I left New Zealand, he was released. And he came to my church and stayed in my church in New Zealand. And he's still there now. He's in the worship team. We get washed pure and white by the Lamb of God. He took our sins upon himself. And we do this magnificent, magnificent divine exchange of beauty for ashes. We walk out of temptation and we are delivered from evil by him, by the cross. That is the most magnificent thing. The cross is incredible. Because we turn back to him and his spirit leads us away from evil. So don't, you know, when, when you go home and over the next days and weeks, recognize these patterns of behavior in yourself and challenge them. Whatever your personal drug is, and go, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough in my marriage. Jesus is enough in my parenting. Jesus is enough for my mom. Jesus is enough for me. Because he's magnetic when you get to know him. There's something about Jesus that is just life-changing. Transformed my life 15 years ago. I used to be an atheist, and then I encountered God, and it ruined my life. <laughs> totally ruined it. I was quite comfortable going out and drinking and partying. I, I quite enjoyed that until the next day when I was hungover. And until the next day when you get those phone calls, do you know what you did? You, when you said that to me, and I was like, oh, no. Did I really do that? And then I would forget about it because I'd, I'd go out for another party. But I was running on empty. I was getting more and more tired with that way of life. And then God grabbed hold of me. He absolutely grabbed me and shook me. Shook every part of my life. And suddenly I found myself in church because I kind of liked this God stuff. I was a bit surprised. And they were praying the Lord's Prayer. And I thought, yeah, that's a good prayer. And I was used to praying it as a kid. And we did it in the same rhythm. And then someone challenged me to think about what the Lord's Prayer actually was. And that was the first time I heard someone talk about the tree of life and being submitted to the tree of life. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because you can have lots and lots of knowledge. And I was quite smart. I'd been to uni and got multiple bachelors of science and bachelors of arts and masters and a PhD. And all of that meant nothing. All that knowledge was no good whatsoever until it was submitted to God. So I want to encourage you, be that little bit more sensitive today. See the people around you and recognize their struggle. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps all of us. If we go, God, help. See the struggles other people go through and be there with them. You don't have to fix them. I've been with people in astonishing situations that I just had no wisdom for. But when you come with God, you lead them to God's presence to sit at the foot of the cross or to sit at the foot of the throne of God in the mercy seat. And he's sitting there and he says, come and sit on my knee. Come and be with me. And you can say, Daddy, I'm home. Abba, 
I'm home. Abba, Father, I'm here. I need you. I can't do this life alone. Something changes in your life. There's something about building your, call it building your hammock in the tree of life. That's just magnificent. Because you can say you can have all the knowledge in the world. And I've seen some theologians that have incredible theological knowledge, but they've never met God yet. They don't, they don't have a life knowing God. They know lots of stuff. And they're secure in that. It's actually that rebellion swing into superiority because I know lots of stuff. But they've never met with the king. Meet with the king. If you're sitting there and you've never really encountered God before, invite him into your life. Invite him to ruin you for an ordinary life. Invite him to change your life. Because you don't want to be living this life all over the place in rejection and rebellion. You actually want the solid rock, the cornerstone of your life that is Jesus Christ. I think it's Psalm 124 that says, they who build their house, sorry, he, they who build their house with, uh, do not build their house with Jesus, build their house in vain. Build your house, build your life on that solid rock of Christ. Have a big pillar in your life that is love because he loves you and therefore you can love other people. You can even love the unlovable. Because the temptation is to pull back from people who aren't always so easy. Oh my gosh, they're, they're Catholics. <gasps> well, yeah. <laughs> oh, they're Methodists. And we're, we're in here and we're in a Baptist church. Oh my gosh. What about the Lutherans or the Lestadians? And you go, but they do it different from us. Well, get over yourself. If you've got all the answers, you don't need God. <laughs> we all need God. And if they want to worship in a different way than you want to worship today great, as long as they're worshiping God. But what if you come across someone who doesn't believe in God? What if you come across an atheist or somebody who's Islamic? What do you do then? How do you love them? How do you care for them? Last thing I'm going to say before I finish. A friend of mine, she's a missionary in New Zealand. She was flying to England and she sat in the plane. She, she managed to get on early. She paid for a little bit to, to get 10 minutes earlier onto the seat. And she's sitting there and she's got her Bible open. And this big Islamic guy comes in and he's obviously an imam, a teacher of, a teacher of the Quran. And he comes and sits down next to her and her head went down. And she's thinking, oh, God, what am I going to do now, God? Really? Really? How are we going to do this? How am I going to speak to him? And God said, love him. Hear him. And she kind of went, okay. And so after a wee while, she... Kind of says, hi, how are you doing? And he went, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. And she said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to London to see my son. He's at university. And she went, oh, that's really cool. So all the way from Dubai to, to London. Yeah. And she said, that's wonderful. What's he doing there? Oh, he's studying in the School of Engin uh, Economics in London. Oh, that's amazing. Why, why is he doing it there and not in Dubai? And he says, oh, he can be whatever he wants to be in Britain. And she went, oh, that's, that's really cool. And he said, what do you do? And she went, I'm a missionary. <laughs> and, and he laughed and said, well, that's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> and she said, well, not really, because I'm a woman, you're just a man. We're, we're just people. We're children of God. And he said, yeah, that's, that's true. But what makes your faith different from my faith? And the temptation was to list down all these rights and wrongs of Islam. But she thought, no, that's not what God said. God said, love him. So she stepped past her comfort zone. She stepped out of her fear and started to love him. And she said, well, 
I, I love that you're, you're a man of faith, that you've got real strength and that, you, that you, you're hanging out there for who you believe God is. And she said, but what's the fruit of your faith? And he said, what do you mean? And she said, well, the fruit of mine is I come from a Western country which is based on Christianity. All the law systems, all the faith systems are generally based on Christianity. And she said, the, the fruit of my faith is freedom. And you send your son to a Christian country to be free. What's the fruit of your faith? And he said, I'm not criticizing you. She said, I, I just want you to see the difference in the fruits of our different gods, because we both know they're not the same God. And she went, oh, oh, sorry, he went, oh, I've got something to think about. It's amazing what happens when you love people and when you step out of your comfort zone. That was a scary thing for her to do on that plane. And by the end of, the, by the end of 10 hours on this plane, they were having a good chat and they would become friends. I don't know if he ever became a Christian. I don't know. But it, she gave him something to think about. But she loved him because her foundation was being loved. She stepped out of the temptation to withdraw and hide. And oh, what if I offend him? What if I upset him? She was never going to upset him because she talked about his passion. She talked about his love, talked about his life. And she celebrated him. But she also spoke truth. She, led from the, she was led by the way and the truth and the life that is the Lord God. When you do that, that rejection, rebellion stuff stops. And you live in God's way. And that last scripture, is, I say it time and time again when I'm teaching. It's one of my favorites. 1 John 3, 1. How great the love that is lavished upon us. That we may be called children of God. And that we are. So grasp it. Walk in God's way. And know that you are beloved. You are loved. And you get beauty for ashes. You walk out of temptation. You are delivered from evil. When you submit yourself and your life to the King himself, to Jesus Christ, to be re reunited to the Father in heaven through the Holy Spirit alive in you. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, thank you so much that you are our God and that you have a way forward for us. Lord, we invite you into our lives. Come and transform us. Come and change us. Expose in us those weak areas, those areas of pain in our lives those areas where we're falling into temptation and we're hurting. Lord, come and do a mighty work in us. And we know this work will be complete on the day Jesus returns and not before. But Paul was confident of the good work that has begun in us. And we're confident of the good work that has begun in us. So Lord, we lay aside perfectionism. We cast it off and say, no, I'm, I'm in process with God. I'm walking out my salvation. I'm walking out my life with you, Lord. Refine me day by day. And Lord, we pray, we pray you bring gold and silver in our lives and ways to walk better each day. Teach us to love you each day. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, let it be something alive to us and not just a poem. Lord, we bless you. We thank you that you're with us and you will never forsake us. Amen. <laughs>